Welcome to A Farther Room. There has been discussion during the last year about polio and how it compares or doesn't compare to the current pandemic that we're in now. And I have an interview for you today that is going to help us look back at that and learn a little bit about it from someone who has firsthand knowledge. So we're going to get right into it. Here's the interview starting now. So I have with me as a guest today, Travis Reeves. Uh, Travis is somebody who I've known for a good while now. Uh, we've had some, um, we've been through some ups and downs, uh, in the same uh, place of work. I think that's fair to say. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, Travis is here to talk to us today about his experiences with polio when he was a kid. So we've heard, you know, when we first talked about this, I mentioned to you that there are a lot of people nowadays, especially ones in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, some of them don't even know what polio is because they've never had to deal with it. Because um, by the 60s and the 70s, it was pretty much gone in the U.S. Um, right. You know, there were just a handful of cases, but especially nowadays, you know, it's it's not around. And um, so, but it gets brought up. It's brought up within the context of the current pandemic. And... We'll get to that a little bit later, but um, just a real quick background. Uh, polio is a virus that is almost as old as history, it seems like. Um, here, right before we hit record, um, Travis was mentioning that they even have some documentation from the ancient Egyptian period that they're pretty sure they had some polio outbreaks back then. And... Um, <clears throat> there have been outbreaks off and on throughout history in the United States. Uh, polio was kind of a big deal in the 1800s and the 1900s. Um, there were outbreaks. The worst one was the year you had it, right? Which Correct. was 1952. 1952. And that year... There weren't a large amount of deaths. I think there were around 3,100 deaths from polio that year. However, most of those deaths were in children. And also, apart from the people who died from it, there were tens of thousands left, um, some of them permanently paralyzed from the virus. Um, so it's um, really contagious and... Most people recover and do okay from it. Some people, a little bit smaller set, uh, subset of people, get they recover from it, but they have to have some kind of physical therapy from it because they had a mild uh, muscle paralysis from it. And I believe that was the, the class you fell into, right? Right. And then there's a, another subset of people who have pretty severe paralysis, I want to say some people just can't walk, period, from that point on. And then there are people that 
the paralysis is even bad enough that it in, it involves their diaphragm and their ability to breathe. So is that where we get into iron lungs and all that type of thing? Right. That's correct, isn't it? Yes. So, um, so I wanted to talk about it just from the perspective of somebody who actually has been through it. I think that would be valuable for people to hear nowadays. So if you don't mind, uh, Travis, would you just tell just a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of your work history? Okay. Well, as far as the, uh, we were living in Shreveport, Louisiana. I was five years old. I was born in 1947, February 25th, 1947. Um, we knew that the polio was, uh, going on. I was, uh, oblivious to it until one evening, uh, I couldn't walk. And, uh, my parents, of course, were very concerned and thought, well, maybe you have polio. They called the doctor's office and it was an epidemic. And the doctor's office said that do not bring him here. We're just overcrowded. Uh, we will send the doctor to your house when we can get somebody there. And those uh, were still in the house call days, right? In the house call days. And a uh, Dr. Bird uh, came late that evening and diagnosed me that I did have uh, polio. And he gave my parents a couple of options. Back then, they were sending children uh, to New Orleans to a clinic or I could be treated at home if there would be somebody that would could do all the therapies that would be required. My parents did not want to send me to New Orleans. Uh, my father uh, was a traveling salesman, and he was gone most all the week. He would be home on weekends, and we, they were very fortunate. There was a man across the street who had a son and daughter, his name was uh, Lassion. He worked at uh, Barksdale Air Force Base. And Mr. Lassion volunteered to help my mother with all the uh, therapy that I would need since my dad couldn't be there. And uh, that's what he did for almost a, over a year, uh, helping her. And uh, the therapy. That's, that's not a small time commitment, is it? No, it was uh, correct. I didn't realize, of course, at that age what a uh, sacrifice he had done until I was later in life in my uh, 20s, and really until I was in my 30s, I guess it was, and uh, I tried to find the man or any of his family to thank him for the sacrifice that he did, and I never was able to find him. Uh, they had moved, but I didn't know where. I did all kind of searches on the Internet, and I've never been able to find him uh, or any of his family. But uh, I was fortunate. I had a wonderful physical therapist. Her name was Mrs. Platt. Uh, I fortunately got to see her after I got married, not too long after I got married. I located her in Bossier City, Louisiana, and took my... Uh, wife Beth and I went to meet her, and I got to thank her for all her work. And I remember going to her clinic, seeing kids come in. I was not, I didn't have braces or crutches, 
Uh, but I saw a lot of kids that did. Um, and she would go through the exercises uh, with me, certain ways to walk, uh, and teach my mother to be doing those exercises. And she would uh, tell her what to do at home. And at home, I would do these exercises. Uh, my mother would have to have help lifting me and putting me into the bathtub. They would give a <coughs> hot baths. That was part of the therapy, was as hot as you could stand the water. They would do those uh, hot baths. I remember that. Um, and I was fortunate in that I didn't have any uh, paralysis after the treatments, which were about a year. I finished just in time to start the first grade, so I didn't miss any school. I started on time and uh, uh, played just like all the other kids did. I didn't have any residual effects at that time. Uh, so you you were living in the Shreveport area when you were a kid, right? Correct. I was living on Canal, Canal Boulevard in Shreveport, Louisiana, yes. So did they, did your folks ever determine where you got it or just speculate who might have given it to you? Uh, no. Of course, you get it by... Uh, con- you know, fecal matter mm-hmm. orally. Just like a stomach bug. Uh, just like a stomach yeah. bug. And the, when the, the streets would flood, uh, when there was a big rains, and the kids, we loved to play in the streets in that water, and that was the suspected right. oh, rainwater. We got it there. Got it there somehow. And it's really, really contagious, like just like a norovirus, a stomach y- bug. Yes. You know, when you say fecal oral route, you know, people get like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm never going to have something like that in my mouth, but it's really easy to be around contempt. If somebody doesn't wash their hands, leaving a restroom, right. And they're sick and they prepare food for you and you eat it. Um, that tends to happen on cruise ships and stuff a, a good bit. So, you know, when there's a stomach bug, working its way around in schools, it's surprising how many people end up getting it. Um, So polio was really contagious just like that. Yes. And as far as I know, though, there were no no other kids in the neighborhood that came down with it. Uh, It was kind of like they didn't want to get around you, so you were kind of isolated, but uh, they Hmm. were... They would stand on the sidewalk. My mother would put me on a pallet on the front porch, and the kids would come by and talk to me from the sidewalk. Uh, they would go on comic book drives, getting comic books for me to read. I was uh, I loved reading comic books. Uh, during Halloween that year, uh, they actually took a trick-or-treat bag uh, that had my name on it and would get candy for me and brought me a trick-or-treat bag with candy. They went on newspaper drives. Uh, it was just astounding. Even though I was isolated, they they still reached out to help in any way they could. So when you have a child who gets an illness that requires intensive physical therapy, you know, it's a big deal, and it can take a toll on parents. Um. Did your did your folks ever talk to you about 
did they ever kind of look back and talk to you about how that was for them when you were older? They never really talked about that. Uh, and I don't think it really made uh, any prolific memories because before my parents passed away, I interviewed them like you're interviewing me. And I interviewed them from their earliest memories to where they met each other, got married. My dad went off to World War II. All the, and my polio, mm-hmm. just some general comments, uh, was only mentioned. Nothing about mm-hmm. how hard it was for physical. Well, in, in the grand scheme of problems they had to deal with, it probably wasn't the worst, if I had to imagine. Uh, exactly. Yeah, so, that's a good way to put it. And people in that generation really tended to just take things in stride. Right. And just do what you have to do. Right. Um, so how long, and I think you mentioned this already, but once you started doing your therapy, uh, how long was it from when you were diagnosed to when you were back to your old self? It had to be within uh, within a year, but I would say within six months after treatment okay. started, I was able to walk again. Okay. So it, you know, we, we look back on some drug therapies and some treatments from a long time ago, and it's easy to kind of question how much benefit they had, you know, like the scalding water, you know, right. Did did that help? Did it not? Um, they, I doubt they had placebo-controlled trials for that time. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, but, you know, a lot of, weren't they, when you did that, wasn't there, I heard that there were some people who made special bathtubs for that. So Pro- probably it had, did. didn't it have a wooden, like a stretcher type thing? Right. I was on a, they made a stretcher with pipes an actual stretcher mm-hmm. with pipes, handles, and all to lower me into the bathtub. Okay. And so you were just, they had it really, really hot, and they just had you in there for a period of minutes and then took it out. To, and that was and every to, day, right? That was every day. Now that you mentioned that, uh, in preparing um, to do this podcast, I I did, I learned something I didn't know. There was a lady, her name was, she ended up with a called Sister Kenny. She was not a Catholic sister. I, I've forgotten the reason they called her sister. But anyway, she was very controversial at first. She was treating polio uh, with mild exercising the limbs instead of leaving them in braces all the time. Mm-hmm. And she also was the one starting the hot baths. She at first was uh, uh, looked down upon by the traditional medical community. But as time went on and she started having the success she did, it, her treatment uh, center developed into a huge mm-hmm. rehab, and it's in existence to this day. And I'm sure you can hear my uh, girls down the stairs making noise. You, so usually when I record, it's really quiet because I'm doing it at night. Right. After they go to sleep or I'm 
every now and then I do it really early before they're awake. Well, uh, Travis and his wife came over for dinner this evening, so my girls are still awake, so I'm sure y'all are going to hear them talk through the uh, scream through this whole thing. So, <laughs> um, so you, you touched on this just a little bit already, but while you were recovering and in your therapy, is there another memory you can think of, just something you remember from seeing other kids do things and you having to watch, you know, you said you would kind of sit on the porch and they would play games, right? And they were, they were pretty nice about it, right? You said they brought you things. Yes. Would they play in your yard? They wouldn't play in the yard. I'd see them maybe skate down the sidewalk. Skates were a big thing back then. Okay. Eventually, and I, I I just uh, wanted to skate so bad. And eventually I was able to skate again. Okay. So, and I, I want to go back to uh, your visit with uh, Miss Platt in a little bit, because um, I do have a couple of questions for you about that. But you mentioned the person who lived across the street from you. Uh, what was his name one more Lassion. time? Lassion. Lassion, okay. And there was your mom, and there was Mrs. Platt. Um, were there any other key players that you can remember who really helped you get back to um, your old self? No, there wasn't okay. anybody else. And they took on they took on all the work basically. They, they did, yes. How long did it take you to find where Mrs. Platt was? You know, I don't really remember the search that I did to find her. And you know how what I year found it was. Uh, Beth and I had not been married long, and so we got married in sixty. It had to be the early seventies. Okay, so you couldn't just Google it. No, uh, no, no, not back then. Not back then. I, I, I honestly do not recall how in the world I found her. It may be that I looked her up in a phone book. I may okay. have gotten it through a phone book. And did you just kind of show up, or did you call her? No, I before? called her, and she knew I was coming. Okay. And you, so, well, I'll just go ahead and ask you since we're talking about it. So. You mentioned to me before that that visit with her made a big, that that was a big memory for you, that you remember a lot of what she had to say and that it was really special for you to be able to visit with her and thank her all those years later. It, it was special to be able to thank her. And, and then she told me some stories of others that had recovered, but mm-hmm. some that had not, that would still in wheelchairs and still had to use crutches and braces. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be able to cut much of that out. <laughs> um, so what, if you could des- describe her when you went to visit her, what was she like? She was very soft-spoken. She always was. She was a very... Uh, she had gray hair pulled back in a bun, a very attractive lady even at that age. And I would say she was probably in her 70s or early 80s. Can you remember, you know, how sometimes you remember things in in images like it's a movie? Can you remember sitting there... Is it still a pretty vivid picture with you? Yeah, what, sitting on her couch in her house. I, yeah, I remember that. It was a nice, nice home. Uh, she had a 
a nice yard. It wasn't anything lavish or anything, just a, uh, a, a medium-type house. And was she married? You know, I always called her Mrs. Platt, uh, but I don't recall ever seeing or hearing anything about a husband. The reason I ask, you know, just so detailed about that is I find that when you think back on something that's really, really important to you and something big that happened or something that's really memorable, oftentimes it sticks with you, like the details stick with you more than just a regular thing that happened that didn't really mean a lot. Right. So um, you probably remember more about her house than you would just any other random person that you went to visit. Sure, yes. Um, You know, there are a lot of practitioners like her still around today that do so much for so many people. And, you know, people like your wife and people who are physical therapists and um, they come into contact with so many countless people during the course of their career. It, it gives you, even though you've been in healthcare for a long time, it just kind of makes you thankful that we have people like that that are willing to give their professional lives to helping people the way that they do. Right. Let me ask you, so, so we're, we're in COVID, right? We've been in it for a lot longer than anybody wanted to be. I've stopped trying to figure out what's going to happen because every time I say something's going to happen, the opposite happens. And I never, ever would have thought sitting here in October of 2021 that we this would still be a, a thing. So at the beginning, I mentioned... You know, people bring up polio in the context of the the vaccine now. And I don't want to get too much into the COVID vaccine. That's not why I bring this up. But one, the people who do that, they kind of point to people who are hesitant to take one of the new vaccine products. And they say things like, well... You know, I wonder what a polio survivor would say about that. Um, you know, they try to look back at other really high-profile vaccines like Salk, his vaccine, um, and they point to the fact that the population at the time was very ready and willing to line up for it. I think people undersell how many people have gotten it in the U.S. For it to be a brand new product in today's information age, I feel like there has been really good uptake of it, honestly. If you want to just look at it from a, a demographics perspective and um, from just trying to roll it out to as many people as you can, under EUA, there were north of 100 million. You know, the, I don't know the exact number now, but there have been 100 and something million people fully vaccinated in the U.S. That's a, that's a ton of people. So I kind of push back on the idea that 
you know, there, we weren't really lining up for it because there were a lot of people who really did want it. But I think, and I want to ask your take on this, I do think one difference is nowadays people are not as quick to trust. They're not, um, they don't put as much faith in news organizations and they don't put as much faith in government. And government has been the one really pushing this. And uh, the, the companies that made them, you know, people are skeptical of them too. You know, because there have been things in the past that happened to kind of taint their image a little bit in the eyes of some people. So do you think it's fair to say that people back then were probably more trusting? And if so, why, why would you say that was? We just, as you say, we're in the information age now. We didn't have, they didn't have sources for the information. And people did, as you said, trusted the government and trusted the medical community. They trusted them. So since you remember that time and you're, you're around now, at what point do you think it's been a really gradual change? Or do you think that there was a, a certain decade or a certain year that it seemed to shift where it seemed like people weren't as trusting of the, the medical community and I guess of government in general. I think it's been a gradual thing until the pandemic. And then when people wanted to be informed more about the vaccines, the pharmaceutical industry, the doctors, and they did their own research and validated and came up with their own opinions as to whether or not they wanted to take a risk of taking the vaccine or risk developing COVID and treating it uh, with other things other than the vaccines or the standard of care protocols in hospitals. Do you think it's a good thing? Now, this is one of those questions that I think you can argue it either way, but do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing to have a population that just demands more information on the front end and is much harder to control and much harder to get on the same page versus have a population where you you definitely still had some skeptics back then, but by and large... Um, people were on the same page and people had trust in the news and it seems like there could be pros and cons of both. Don't you think so? Oh yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like on the one hand you have a trusting population. It's a lot, if something like COVID comes along, it's a lot easier sell you know, when you're trying to get everybody to do one thing or another, like mass or vaccine or social distance or whatever you want to say. But on the other side of that, you, um, it seems like it would be a lot easier to, um, keep things from people. So, whereas now it's a lot harder to 
keep anything a secret. So it seems like there's a lot more demand for transparency in how you're doing things. I agree. Yes. Do you think we're going to get through this at all? I think eventually the truth <laughs> will prevail. I think eventually. Well, do, do you think there's going to be another wave this winter? I hope there's not. But there are some in the scientific community, credential people, that think there will be another wave because of the vaccines the effect it's going to have on the immune system in such a way that people will, their bodies will not be able to fight it because the vaccine, according to studies, wears off in about six months anyway. Yeah. And I know there have been some people who are afraid that there's going to be an, at some, even if it's not this winter, at some point there's going to be a wave that is um a variant that's even more resistant to antibodies than Delta was because we've trained so many people's immune system on this one protein that some people are afraid that the virus is going to have hundreds of millions of chances to learn how to get around that. But I'm, like I said, I, I have stopped trying to figure it out. I'm hopeful. I'm cautiously optimistic that we're through it. Because before Delta, there were four or five variants at any one point. You know, you could look at the sequencing and it would be beta, you know, alpha, eta, blah, blah, blah. Little bit of Delta. And then Delta just kind of took over. And I think the reason is because the, the people who did get a vaccine, I think, the earlier variants didn't stand up to it, but Delta did. And so if you look at it now, it's like 90-something, 98% Delta in the U.S. So being that we've been through our Delta wave, unless there's another variant of concern that's spreading right now that we don't really know about, I keep hearing about Lambda, in South America, but I've been hearing about that for months. So yeah. I don't know if it's spreading or if it's not. I have to read about that more. But except for another variant of concern, I would like to think we're through it. Let me ask you just a couple more things. In your opinion, do you feel like our national response to... COVID has been mostly good or mostly bad or kind of a mix? Like, do you think there's some things it seems like we got about right or, um, you know, not really? I think it was uh, terrible in the, the response. And the reason I say that is that early on I saw a Dr. Corey, I think is his name, that was uh, testified before Congress early on in the epidemic about early treatment with ivermectin. And he was totally dismissed. Nothing came out of that hearing. They suppressed all the news about it. And if they had listened to that doctor, there would have been a thousands and thousands of people that have been tr would have been treated early if they would have put the word out and would be with us today. 
Yeah, and maybe not even with just ivermectin. You know, there's there's several other things. I've oh tried yeah, too for sure. Um, yeah, you know it. That is one of the more frustrating things for me to see is how there have been so many people just deleted or deplatformed for talk just talking about certain things, and you know the the people who are doing it would argue. Well, we're trying to limit the flow of misinformation. Um, you know, we're we're trying to make sure that people are only getting really accurate information when it comes to COVID. And it's like, okay, whatever, fair enough. But that's not the message you send. You know, if you go and you just delete, I think now they're pretty much having to back off on ivermectin a little bit because it's just been talked about so much in the last three or four months. But there are two or three people that I know that I had listened to some interviews and episodes of their shows that their entire show was just deleted. Oh, um, yeah. Over an, an episode about it. So it the message that sends isn't, hey, we're trying to make sure you get their best info. The message that sends is we're trying to cover this up. But, yeah, I agree. And... You know, you, you can argue all day about that. You know, there are people, and I probably, I've been working on like a little manuscript about ivermectin a little bit, and it's not even really to champion the drug. It's really just to talk about, I don't understand why people are going so insane over this. Um, I don't understand the censorship around it. I don't understand why doctors are being threatened with their license for prescribing it to people it's um it's insane and um and you can say you can say i don't think it works okay fine you know the, and there are people who think it doesn't and that's fine that's there's there are some studies out there that show well there's probably not all that much benefit but there are also a lot of studies that show there is benefit so, I mean, in my view, how do you figure that out? How do you solve that? You start giving it to more people and you really see for yourself. Cause you know, 90, I'd say 95% of the people who say it don't work, it doesn't work, have never really tried it themselves. <laughs> so, right. I really appreciate you being willing to talk about your, um, recovery was the last, there was something that I meant to touch on earlier that I never asked you about, but once you had recovered and your therapy was over with, did you have any lingering um, kind of effects from having polio at all, like just nagging this or that, or were you pretty much 100% after you were done? Pretty much 100%. And then when I got into my 60s, uh, I started learning about post-polio syndrome. And I think I have a touch of that, a weakness in my legs. Mm -hmm. uh, and the surgery I had to have for a knee replacement uh, made it even worse. My left leg is pretty much, uh, I have to be very careful I'll fall. Uh, because I lost a lot of the, because I put off the surgery so long, I lost even more muscle mm -hmm. there 
Um, so there is a, a, a true syndrome, post-polio syndrome, but I, I don't, mine is very mild. It could get worse as I get older and lose, but that comes with age anyway. So how much you can say, well, that's due to your polio or just aging, it's kind of hard to right. tell. Did you know anyone... I know you said that when you had it, there were no other kids in your neighborhood that you knew of that had it. But you did you know of anybody anybody else throughout your life who had it? Well, now that you asked that, when I was in pharmacy school, my last year of pharmacy school, I uh, worked at Lincoln General Hospital in Ruston, Louisiana. And one of the aides there, it was a male aide, had a shriveled up, uh, arm and hand, and it, it was pretty much non-functional. His uh, name was Roger, I remember that, and he that was from him having polio. Uh, huh. That was one person that I met, and then I didn't really meet anybody else again until uh, I guess I was in my 60s, and I uh, went to a couple of meetings of a post-polio syndrome association here in the Jackson area, and I met a number of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one couple, uh, uh, Kemp Garth, his wife is still in a wheelchair. I haven't seen her in a long time. They haven't been to church in, in quite a while. She's not doing very well, but she's been in a wheelchair pretty much ever since she was afflicted with polio, but I don't know what her age was when she came down with it. That's pretty much it. The only the ones that I've met. So, the iron lung treatment that some people had to have, who were left there, they were so paralyzed they couldn't breathe. I didn't realize that the the patients who in the fifties and the sixties ended up having to go on go into one of those. Some of them lived for decades after that. That's what I understand. But I never met anybody only uh, in an iron lung. I just saw pictures. I never actually saw one. And the one other really fascinating thing I learned is during 2020, there were certain areas of the world that experienced a ventilator shortage, like in Italy. And there was a lot of word about ventilator shortage in the U.S. And I don't think other than a, a handful of cities that anybody really struggled with the ventilator shortage, but somebody made some kind of device that was sort of similar to what that it was a, it was a therapy device that worked kind of the same way. It obviously wasn't this huge, you know, metal thing, you, the metal column, but it worked kind of the same way with the negative and positive pressure. So um, when they, in, in the absence of a ventilator, they put them in something like that. And I thought it was really interesting that they kind of learned from that past device, uh-huh. you know, and they were able to go back and uh, kind of recycle something from that era and use it nowadays. I, I just thought that was crazy because I read that just the other day when I was um, looking at iron lung articles. Huh. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. And, um, you know, it's like I said, I I try to include people who have firsthand knowledge of things and not just hearsay. And 
the the people of your dad's generation and the people of your generation um people should have a lot of respect for because in my opinion the people that live today these the people in their 20s 30s they don't really understand some of them the covid pandemic is the first real challenge they've ever had to face yeah you know that we haven't in the last several decades you know we just haven't had to face really this nation shattering challenge like you know the world wars and vietnam and korea and um you know it's like since the cold war has been over people that grew up either were born in the 80s like me or even Gen Xers who were too young to really remember that. And they've just kind of grown into this thing where war is something you see on TV, but you know, not everybody has to participate in it type thing. And, you know, we've just gotten to a point where we're so advanced medically. We're so advanced with our economy and just, technology the way it is it's it's crazy and people are so used to things being like they are right now yeah and i'm sure you can remember a time when things weren't as easy as they are now yeah yeah so i i i hope that we learn something from all this from covid i hope i hope that younger people learn at a minimum, it's a little bit like an economics 101 course in real time, you know, because of the shortages and understanding that, you know, sometimes you go to the store and there's nothing there. Yeah. (laughs) And, but we always expect it to be there. We do. Yeah. We're spoiled. Well, I, I would just like to mention, because of the experience of polio and of uh, how grateful I was for how people helped me, that kind of ingrained in me to pursue a, a, a career in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, I got into healthcare was because I wanted to give back. And that was something for me that was a good thing that came out of all of it for me. And I've enjoyed my career uh, that I've had in pharmacy. It's not an easy career, is it? No. <laughs> you know, health healthcare in general is is difficult work, especially people who are frontline caregivers. Oh, I admire the nurses, uh, the aides, uh, anybody that's in the front line, uh, and particularly now with COVID, and. Unfortunately, there are those that have given their all and they just choose not to get the vaccine. And here they are. They put their lives at risk and here they are, you know, losing their livelihood and their income. And uh, it's tragic. I agree. I agree. And I think I would like to think sooner rather than later what we're doing will be reevaluated. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think there's going to be enough pushback because there are people who aren't even political. And there's uh, several people I've listened to who um, were uh, Biden donors, you know, who are just like, 
I'm I'm not doing this anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's hard it's always hard to tell when you hear one person say something, you know, what it's really gonna mean as far as politics, but um it'll be interesting to see how things turn out moving forward, that's for sure. because um, yeah. it's it's been a big shake up to people's lives. For sure. Yes. Well, this has been um Travis Reeves, this is, we're actually recording on Halloween, uh, 2021, and um, thank you as always for listening, and uh, we'll have some more um, episodes and interviews coming your way before too long. Take care. Take care.